is in Exodus chapter 32, if you'll turn with me there. Exodus 32, Paul is going to be preaching out of verses 1 through 26, but I'm going to go ahead and read the entire chapter. So turn with me, if you will, and follow along. Exodus chapter 32. Many of you are familiar with the story of the golden calf, but sometimes we know it generically, and so let's go through this so that it's fresh in our mind when Paul expounds upon it to us. Verse 1, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron and he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may not burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation." Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self. And said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have spoken of, I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain. And the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides. On the one side and on the other they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. 
So it was, as soon as he came near the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger became hot. And he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf which they had made, burned it in the fire, ground it into powder, and scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people, that they're set on evil. For they said to us, said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and this calf came out. Wow, that's a little embellishment, huh? Now, when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, that he may bestow on you a blessing this day. For every man has opposed his son and his brother. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin... But if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now therefore go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just how you bring your character and reveal our character when we open your word to us. And God, we pray that this morning you would open this word up to us more. That we would not only see this sin that was so great against you, but that we would see ourselves and our rebellion as well. God, I pray that you would use Pastor Paul for your glory, that you would give him great clarity of thought and mind and speech as he speaks to us, and that we would um, not only grasp what you have for us here today, but that we would apply it deep in our hearts. So use this time for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
God can come across as being severe at times. And uh, sometimes it's very difficult to understand God's ways. I'm thinking here about William and I'm thinking about his parents, or his parents particularly now. And there is, I, I, I echo what Steve said, you know, there is no, there's no words of wisdom that can be given from us and there is no, um, no, no explanation that can be given other than um, God is a God that knows the beginning from the end that, and we don't. Remember that in... Um, the time of Hezekiah, Hezekiah was told that he was uh, to kind of get his house in order because he would die. And he prayed earnestly to God and uh, the prophet Isaiah came back and uh, healed him and he got another 15 years. But in that 15 years, a son was born to him called Manasseh. And that man, Manasseh, became the king after Hezekiah and was perhaps the worst king that Israel ever had. Um, The point is, of course, that we don't know the future. We don't know how things interact. And God does. And we have to trust, even though it doesn't, it seems to be the most simple, straightforward request. God for the sake of his parents, heal this young man. Um, it seems to us to be a no-brainer. And we have to face that. Okay? We, we, you know, I don't like bro- uh, broad-brushing stuff and saying, oh, you know, that uh, we praise God, but we praise God unthinkingly. We need to, we need to ground our praise in uh, the reality of a, a grieving mother and father here. And the response is that we trust that God had his reasons and we don't know. We trust in the providence of God. We trust in the providence of God. So God sometimes seems severe and he seems severe in this chapter, doesn't he? Um, But this chapter, the the episode of the golden calf, really, I think, helps us to conceptualize and understand the holiness of God and the greatness of God and the reality of who God is with the reality of who we are as human beings and as sinners. Um, There can scarcely be a greater contrast in worshipping than you find in this chapter. I remind you of the background to it because, you know, there's quite a lot of chapters between uh, chapter 24, you know, when they make that covenant, they say all of these things we will do, you know, after the Ten Commandments and then the exposition of those have been given in the Book of the Covenant. And at the end of chapter 24, they get sploshed with blood Yes, and the book gets splashed with blood and there's this covenant ceremony, this ratification of the Mosaic Covenant 
um, which seals, as it were, the commitment of the people and the commitment of God in covenant together. Then Moses goes up the mountain. And Moses and Joshua, they go up through the cloud and they go up, remember the, cloud, the, the mountain's burning with fire. And it's shaking. And they go up through that, um, that cloud. And the, all of the intervening chapters that we find, up until chapter 32, are Moses up in the mountain. So chapter 32 is telling us what's going on or what was going on during the time Moses was up in the mountain, you see? Now, probably a little time went by and the people were okay and they were, you know, talking and they were looking up at the mountain and they they still had the fear of God and the, the, the memory of the voice of God was still ringing in their ears. But gradually, not so gradually, They forgot all about it. It's like they took for granted what was going on at the mountain. How extraordinary. Do you remember that uh, Jesus once told a parable of uh, a rich man and a man called Lazarus, a poor man? And the rich man went to hell and... But, but it seemed to have been there was a chasm between uh, Abraham's bosom, which was uh, the paradise that people went to before the resurrection of Christ, and uh, hell where the rich man was, and he could see across there, and he could see the, that Lazarus was comforted, yes? And so he called across this chasm to, uh, to Abraham, and uh, asked that Lazarus, because he still thought of him as a servant, as a nobody, send Lazarus to tell my, you know, to warn my family. Still didn't get it. Still didn't understand it. And the response, of course, in the story from Jesus is, "There's no point in doing that, because they will not believe. They won't believe even if one rises from the dead." That is the nature of unbelief. That's the nature of sin. And sin often shows itself in these, uh, you know, not so great transgressions that only a few people know about. Maybe only we know about, we and God, uh, or people in our family, uh, you know, just a few people. Often they don't, these sins that we commit don't break out into the wider culture. Of course, sometimes they do. And sometimes they become great sins which uh, have, which play out down through the years. But God is holy. God is the God who has a right to say what we ought to do and what we ought not to do. How he is to be approached and how he is not to be approached. And we need to always have God in mind. Otherwise, we will drift. We will drift. What does Jeremiah say about the human heart? Do you remember? 
is deceitful above all, above all things and desperately wicked. Here you are. Here's an instance of that wickedness. Smoke on the mountain. They've just agreed a covenant with God. And then what do we read here in verse 32? Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down, you see a bit of impatience there from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron. Gathered together to Aaron. Not just one or two of them. There's a bunch of them surrounding him. And said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses... The man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. You know, maybe he's just, he's gone up there and he's died. And uh, so they'd reasoned that, you know, well, looking at uh, how dangerous it looked on the top of that mountain, he just went into the cloud and, you know, God consumed him. Do you see? And so, you know, we're left leaderless now. And Aaron, it's up to you to do something about this, okay? We've gathered together, we've been talking about this, and we think that you need to make us some gods. Just, just picture this. Make us some gods when God is on the mountain. But, of course, they can't see him. They can see the mountain engulfed in flame and cloud. They can recall hearing the voice of God, but they can't see him. And such is the deceitfulness of the human heart that they need to use their five senses to see this God. This is the kind of a God that they were used to seeing in Egypt. And so you need to make us some gods. Forget the one that's on the mountain there. You need to make us some. And they, te- uh, they speak deceitfully, or sorry, uh, contemptuously of Moses. So, there's this tremendous peer pressure on Aaron. Aaron is not his brother. Aaron does not, he's a, he's a good man, he's a holy man. And we read about that, of course, later on. But he doesn't have that strength of leadership, that strength of character that Moses does. God picked the right man. And Aaron succumbs to this temptation. Maybe, you know, the devil was whispering in his ear and saying, well, maybe maybe, Moses has been a while up there. Yeah, maybe he's not coming down and it's all on you. And he felt that tension. And so, we read in verses uh, 22 to 24, this is is Aaron's excuse to Moses, you know, as to why he succumbed. Do not, uh, Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. Now, yes, 
They'd already shown that. Even though they'd seen the Red Sea part, even though they'd seen these plagues come down on the Egyptians, even though they'd been fed through the desert, even though they'd seen the fiery mountain, yes, they're set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me and I cast it into the fire and this calf came out. A miracle. Yeah. Wouldn't you know it, you know? I mean, they had calves in in, uh, Egypt and uh, a a calf just happens to come out of the fire here. I mean, no craftsmanship involved whatsoever. The danger of peer pressure. The danger of peer pressure. Folks, we might be resolute when we're on our own or we might be resolute when we're uh, with friends or people who agree with us. But what about the unbelieving world? What about those who compromise? Maybe inside of a a church or inside of a, a ministry. What about when compromise starts to come in? And you get overwhelmed by it. You get surprised by it. You think everyone's on, you know, thinking the same way you are. And then all of a sudden they come to you. And you realize their heart's not with you. And you better get into line because they've been talking. They've been, you know, they've been chatting about this. And they've come to a decision. And that decision is not what you expected. This is often what happens in churches when there are church splits. It happens in, uh, in other ministries. I've been in, uh, in other ministries where this kind of thing has happened and you get kind of broadsided by it. And in that moment, you need to understand where your next step is going to be taken. And the decision, by the way, shouldn't take you more than half a second to come to. It shouldn't take you any longer than it takes to say yes or no. Because we know what God, or we ought to know what God said. And what our duty is in light of what God said. And if we're wavering on that we start to detect here this cursed aspect of man which is not depending on God, of of thinking independently of God and reasoning independently of God and coming to conclusions independently of God. The thing that got us into this mess in the first place in the Garden of Eden. It rears its ugly head and we ought to be able to recognize it straight away. In our answer, it should be, no. You've got a God there up in the mountain. He's just been speaking to him and just made a covenant with him.
But what about this God? What about God? I mean, surely he knew that in calling up Moses into the mountain, he was leaving this risk or this opportunity down there below. Yes? God puts people, puts us, he puts uh, people with whom he deals in situations where they are responsible to respond in the right way. Even though he knows whether they're going to respond in the right way or not. That is true in our Christian lives. God puts us into situations and we can't say, well, you know, the pressure was too much for us. The peer pressure uh, or the cultural pressure. He puts us in situations and we are supposed to stand on our own two feet. Even when it feels as though, you know, we don't have much support. The support is what God said. That's enough. It makes it easy and it makes it hard. It makes it easy because it's straightforward enough, okay? You know whether you're in line with it or not. It makes it difficult because you're against people and people come against you. But that's life. That's the pilgrim way. Going back to verse 2 through verse 6, we see that Aaron probably had good intentions. Aaron said to them, verse 2, Break off the golden earrings which are in your ears, uh, the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. Now, in order to do that, you see, he, Aaron had to reason in his mind that the God that's up in the mountain, the God that's called him and his brother, that that God needs to be represented physically by something that we can fashion. Yes, We'll make it out of gold because at least, you know, that's, a, that's valuable. So all the people did that. They broke off the golden earrings, which... Uh, were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And there was a lot of people there. So there was a lot of earrings, a lot of gold. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it. He's the one, you see. Like, oh, this calf came out. No, Aaron, no, you're the one who made it. He fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, they said, this is your God, O Israel that brought you out of the land of Egypt, not the one that's up on the mountain there, that Moses is speaking to at this very time. Do you see the, the sin here? Do you see the craziness, the insanity of this? Now, in Aaron's mind, he probably thought that I'm making a representation of the God that's there and that will connect their thoughts with, uh, you know, with the God of the, on, on the smoking mountain. Okay? And they'll kind of make that connection. That's probably what he was thinking. It's called pragmatism, this, by the way. It's called pragmatism. Okay? That's not what they were thinking at all. What they were thinking is, let's have another God. 
Let's have another God. You see, we need to understand that God says what he says. And if we're not willing to stand on what God says, good intentions don't cut it. Good intentions, okay, if they are not uh, stuck and adhered with what God said, can always be used by Satan and always be used by unbelief and always be used by the world to redirect the worship of God and the truth of God away from the true God. That's what happened here. There's a famous incident in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6 where the ark that had been taken by the Philistines, remember, it came back, God brought it back, and uh, eventually... You know, there, there was a, a few hiccups about it, but David, once he'd been anointed king and he had the power, the first thing that he wanted to do was bring that ark back to Jerusalem. So, what did they do? Put it on a cart? Oh, yes. Started um, driving the horses down this rickety road and the ark shifts on the back of the cart. And Uzzah, a priest, puts out his hand. Just all he's doing, folks. All he's doing. He's a, I mean, he's well-intentioned. Okay? Is he's putting his hand there to stop the ark from falling out of the cart. God kills him. Bam! You say, well, that's what on earth? What kind of a God are we dealing with here? We're dealing with a God who means what he says. We're dealing with a God who says, don't put the ark in a cart. Let the priest carry it. There are, there are poles that you put through it and the priests are to carry the ark. Do you remember that? Uzzah should have remembered that too. And he shouldn't have been in that cart. Good intentions don't cut it if we are not agreeing with what God said. People say, oh, well, he's such a nice person. He's such a good person. He may be, in comparison with us, in comparison with many people, that person may be a very good person. But if they haven't trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation, their good deeds are not going to be good enough. And the truth is, they need salvation. And that's only found in Jesus Christ. Good intentions do not cut it, folks. Thirdly here, let's have a look at what the people's intentions really were. Okay? Now, um, verse, we'll start, start at verse 7 even though verses 17 through 19 really are the, the description but, but uh, we're told here well verse 6 then they rose up early the next day offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings we're not, set, not told who to but, but maybe it started off like yes burnt offerings and peace offerings to God 
Okay. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They sat down and they rose up. And between the, dif- between the time that they sat down and they rose up, a change had happened. And the faith or the religion of the people had changed from one that ostensibly was worshipping God, even in the wrong way, to one that had completely abandoned the words of the covenant that they'd agreed to. And when it says that they rose up to play here, the idea is they're not playing tiddlywinks, okay? The idea is debauchery. So God here speaks to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, go, get down for your people. (laughs) You see that? Your people. Your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then verses uh, 17 through 19. said, when Joshua had had come down the mountain, when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. Well, singing's fine, isn't it? Singing's a good thing. So it was as soon as he came near the camp and he saw the calf and the dancing. That's why they were singing. So Moses' anger became hot and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. This singing and dancing and making merry was, uh, was debauchery. And the, the word that's used there Uh, signifies uh, sexual debauchery. Um, How quickly, how quickly they turn. Even in this circumstance and all that they'd seen, their hearts are never really with God, are they? No wonder that uh, when they get to Kadesh Barnea and, and they're sent in to look at the promised land and they see the giants, okay, and they, they report back, ten of them report back and say, well, we're grasshoppers in their sight, we can't go in. God's plans here, he didn't, he didn't plan for this. He didn't see this coming. This is too much for us. God knew that 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 would happen. Why? Because of their hearts. They weren't with God. If they'd have been with God, they'd have been like Caleb. And they would have been like Joshua. Let's go in and rout these giants. We have to know whether God has our hearts or not. They were having a good time of it. But that good time was to change very quickly. 
in verse uh, 7 through 10, we've seen that God here tells Moses what's going on. And verse 19, we see Moses' response. His anger became hot. This is righteous anger. This is not him losing it. Okay? There is a time for righteous anger. There is a time for proper anger. He cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Well, who, who, who wrote those on those tablets? This is the only... Look, we've got lots of tablets that have come down to us from the ancient world. Okay? They're all incomprehensible to most of us. But there's only one set of tablets which were ever written by the finger of God. That would have been a pair of tablets to keep, wouldn't it? What's Moses thinking about? He understands. He gets it. What's the point of having these tablets and bringing them down to this people? They have made a, a nothing of these commandments. And so, what does Moses do? He breaks them, he grinds them up, and he says, Okay, you drink the remnants of these tablets in the water. That's what you've made of them. Righteous anger. There's Moses' anger that we read about, and then there's God's anger too. Get out of the way, Moses. I'm going to smite them. I'm going to get them. Moses intercedes for them, of course. We'll look at that in just a second. Moses intercedes for them. God, because he's just, because they are in covenant with him, accepts that, but the people, probably the ringleaders, they were going to receive the justice of God. But then there's something else. There's something else that has to happen. And uh, that is God wanted to know who was on his side. Who among these people, hundreds of thousands of people, who were going to be on God's side? Who were going to come away from these false gods? And the tribe of Levi did that. And they were God's instruments in this position, in this situation. You've got to put, it, put yourself in this situation of God on the mountain and everything that they've been through. They come and they are God's means of execution on the people. And it's because of that that the Levites serve God. They become the priestly tribe. Because they chose God. Do you see? They chose God. Not an easy job to do. Not an easy situation to envisage. But folks, there is always a choice. There is always a choice between the true God and his truth and between error and between idolatry and between covenant breaking between God's will and our will 
I know that in Jesus Christ we're forgiven. All of that is washed away. All of our sinful thoughts and inclinations and all the things that we've done or not done, all the things that we'll mess up with in the future, I know by the grace of God, God doesn't see that anymore. And I'm so thankful for that. Because I look into my heart and I see the plague of my own heart. So thanks, thank God for that. But there, is still, there still remains a responsibility that I have to the truth, to God, to the God that saved me. I never have license to do what I want to do. Unfortunately, I find myself stepping over the line far too often. What is that really but me thumbing my nose to the character of the God who saved me? Well, Moses, as I've said, he intercedes for God. And this is the, the conclusion that I want to leave you with. Moses intercedes. But what does he intercede? What does he use as the basis of his intercession? Can anyone tell me, looking at the text? What is the basis of Moses' intercession for the people? Answer, the covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He intercedes for them on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant, which was an unconditional covenant. It wasn't one that Abraham signed on the dotted line with. Okay? Just God was the only one who signed on the dotted line of that one. And so on the basis of that, God appeals for mercy on the people of Israel. Now, there is a corollary or corollary as you guys say don't you whatever on the basis of the covenant that we are in as Christians we can always appeal for a restitution of our fellowship with God and since God is the one who set that up and made it with us in Jesus Christ the answer when we appeal on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ is always yes. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It doesn't matter how many times we, do, we come. There is a basis for God's righteous forgiveness of us at all times. There is a basis for renewed fellowship. And we need to understand that rather than God's judgment and his wrath coming upon us, doesn't. Doesn't. What we need to take into account here is that the restitution is simple confession on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done and then faith in the fact that we now are 
from that moment on, that moment of confession, restored. Whether we feel it or not, whether the devil tells us we are or not, we are restored and it's all okay with us and God. It's always okay as far as, far as, as, far as uh, the, the judgment of God and the condemnation of God, that will never come upon us. But as far as fellowship with God, we're okay on the basis of God's new covenant. I'm glad I'm not under the law. Because I don't, I don't know that I wouldn't be partying and reveling with the rest of them. I hate to think of it. It disgusts me. But I'm so thankful for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray our thanks to you. We pray, Heavenly Father, and confess the plague of our hearts to you. We wish, Lord, we were not what we were, what we are. Yes, we're forgiven. Yes, you don't see us as sinners anymore. And that is a blessed status to be in. But, Lord, we also know that it is by the grace of God that we stand. We're accepted in the beloved, not because of ourselves. And so, Father, we offer you thanks and we offer you praise, knowing that your goodness, your kindness to us, your mercy towards us is new every morning. And we pray, please help us to walk in the Spirit and not in our own flesh. In the name of Jesus, amen.